Welcome to the Ethics Experts, where we're elevating ethics and compliance, and HR, to the strategic level it's supposed to be. Ended up working through that and, and being involved in, in a lot of the, uh, uh, the, the, the firm level internal controls, things of that nature. And uh, in, involved in, in understanding the structures and understanding how those firms worked. And then as a result of that, uh, ended up over at BDO USA. Um, and so just from that perspective, I think of working from uh, uh, the, the control structures of the large firms and, and understanding how those work and, and being involved in one in and of itself, uh, it, it was somewhat of a natural movement into the compliance role when that opened up and uh, had the opportunity to, 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 to be in that role. So tell us about BDO. Um, for those of us who don't, who aren't familiar with the organization, what is its structure? What are you in the business of? Yeah, BDO is, is a uh, it's an accounting and auditing firm. It, it's a professional services firm that provides accounting, tax, management, consulting, uh, all those different types of, of services. And uh, uh, similar to, to some of the larger firms like you would see with Deloitte, KPMG, that type of thing. So, so when you first got into public accounting. This was before WorldCom, this was before Zarbanes-Oxley and all those kinds of things. And how has that landscape changed, you know, over the last 20 or 30 years, you know, and how has that sort of changed the, the things that you need to look out for as a compliance officer with respect to the business that you're in? You know, it all, it all kind of changed at the same time, right? So when, you know, you're right, I was involved as, as an auditor uh, prior to Enron, prior to all those uh, activities that took place. And when Enron fell, when WorldCom occurred, uh, and you had Arthur Anderson that was involved, uh, Sarbanes-Oxley Act came out at that point in time. It created the Public Company Accounting Office, uh, Oversight Board. It also created some other uh, issues within compliance and ethics and requiring code of conduct and things of that nature and, and some of the things that we see today. So within that act and so forth, the requirement to uh, uh, for audit firms to, to audit uh, internal controls of, of companies and to have an opinion on, on the internal control structures of, of companies that were audited and so forth for public companies. That really created a, a different trajectory, I think, in terms of, of how audits were, were looked at prior to that point. And uh, you know, along with that, you see a lot more regulation that came along. And, and I think you also see kind of hand in hand the growth of the compliance and ethics group at the same time, you know, the, 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 the compliance and ethics offices over that course of time, too. So I would imagine a lot of people would think, boy, it's probably really easy to be a compliance officer over an accounting firm because accountants are so conscientious in general. Um, they're rule followers. They're people who understand the rules. They're, um, they're largely upholders. Um, why are those people wrong? What, what don't they get about the difficulties that go into your job? It, it, you know, it's a little bit of a challenge. Professional services is a little bit of a challenge uh, because you have a lot of people out there uh, that, that are making decisions day to day. And so, you know, like where maybe a, a, a manufacturing company, things of that nature, you're working towards a particular products. In this instance, you're providing a service that's based on judgments oftentimes. Mm -hmm. And so you've got a lot of people out there that are making judgments hundreds you know, of people, thousands of people that are making day-to-day -day judgments that could impact uh, your firm in terms of, of you know, are, they, are they making ethical 
compliant type decisions in, in their day-to-day -day operations as, as they move through. And we also have people that, that you know, I, I mentioned, we, we have accounting we, or in auditing, we have tax, we have consulting. People that are in those, those lines all look at things a little bit differently. And so, you know, whereas uh, an auditor may see something one way, uh, a consultant may see it a different way, and having everybody working towards the same goal is, is, uh, it can be fun and challenging at the same time. So if this was, I guess I don't really know how, how to ask this, but how do you avoid the Arthur Anderson thing? And what role do you think you play as an ethics and compliance um, officer in BDO to mm -hmm. avoid even coming close to that edge of the cliff? Very interesting question. And, and I think that oftentimes um, it, it has a lot to do with culture. Uh, and, you know, I think as, as compliance officers, we, we often talk about culture and, and ensuring that you have you have a culture within your firm of, of compliance, of ensuring that everybody is, is, is familiar with the rule sets that uh, apply to your organization and, and that, uh, you know, they're familiar and that they apply those on a day to day basis. Uh, in, in this sense, uh, you know, what we saw, I think, back 20 years ago was was uh, people that were kind of pushing the envelope a little bit in mm -hmm. terms of of the ethical decisions that they were making within accounting and things of that nature. Uh, over the last 20 years and uh, with the PCAOB and the oversight that that organization has had over audit firms, I think you've seen a very different uh, shift in the mindset of auditors of accounting firms and, and, and the people that work within them, recognizing that, you know, that it is imperative of, of making those day-to-day uh, -day decisions that are ethical and, and, and compliant. I mean, it's kind of an interesting thing because, mm -hmm. you know, uh, what the PCAOB does um, it's sort of a reinforcement of a bunch of principles that are already in all the accounting literature and it's in all the, you know, the public accounting, That's right. uh, you know, tests and all that, that kind of stuff. Why is that organization even needed? You think, you know, um, prior to the, prior to the creation of the PCAOB, the audit firms had, uh, what's known as peer review. So, you know, that they, you know, one firm looked at another, uh, issued an opinion, as to whether or not that firm thought the other firm was doing things in accordance with the rules and regulations. That construct still exists, but uh, for public companies, the PCOB sits on top of that and inspects firms uh, that, that audit publicly traded companies and, and you know, looks a little bit deeper and, and their, their specific focus is investor protection, right? So they're there to ensure that the audit firms are doing what they need to do to protect investors. And I think what we saw prior to the PCAOB was that uh, maybe the, the audit firms in general were not as focused on investor protection as they should have been. Whereas the PCAOB does bring that. And I think in today's world, you see these audit firms much more focused on investor protection and, and doing what is necessary to protect the investor rather than to pr protect the client as much. Yeah, and I think I may suffer from CPA exceptionalism. I'm a CPA myself. Okay. Um, but 
I mean, at the end of the day, it's just a bunch of human beings that are in a particular profession. And that whole peer review thing that was the previous sort of governing, you know, way to sort of govern, uh, it's just wrought with moral hazard or at least the potential for it, right? Okay. So this independent body does allow for some different sort of controls in place that are going to hopefully keep people on the, you know, straight and narrow, as it were. When you were thinking of making, bring me back, I'd love to even go back further. Like, let's go back to you're in college and you're trying to pick a profession. How did you choose accounting? What, what was it about it that was really attractive for you? You know, it's interesting. Uh, I always knew I wanted to do something in business. And uh, so, so as I went into college, I, I, I wanted to do something. And I wasn't really sure at the time. I didn't know if it was to be finance or if it was to be accounting. Uh, uh, you know, marketing, whatever it may be. I kind of knew I wasn't a very good salesperson to begin with. So I, I kind of ruled that out pretty quickly. And then uh, my father was a banker. And uh, I, I think, you know, he, uh, he said, you know, uh, where, where the banking industry was at the time, he said, probably that's not a good idea either. And so, you know, they kind of left accounting and, and it was a very, it, it's very interesting to me. And uh, so that's where I, I did move through from, from a college perspective and got involved uh, and then went into to, you know, one of the larger firms, you know, straight out of college. And what was that like um, stepping into this, this large firm? You spent four or five years yeah. um, learning about how business is supposed to be done. Did you jump right into auditing? I did. Yeah. So I mean, what was that like? Bring us back to like some of those lessons you learned. What were your big surprises when you got when you got out of school and started to see how business was actually done? <laughs> right. Yeah. So, so it, it, uh, it was interesting. I worked on a number of different audits, uh, some large, some small. And, uh, you know, the larger audits as, as a first, second, third year person, you only see so much of it. Right. You, you know, right. usually you get a lot of people involved. And, and so you, you see your piece. But on some of the smaller audits, you see more in terms of, of how the entire operation, the entire company works. And, uh, you know, I, th I think some of the, the lessons there over time were, you, you know, uh, just understanding people working through the, the judgments that they make uh, and evaluating the information that they're telling you. You know, as an auditor, you've got to remain skeptical. And, you know, somebody may be giving you a piece of information that is, is exactly what you're looking for, totally truthful, and, and, and totally supports what you're trying to do. In other instances, it may be, you know, not totally what you, you, you're after, and it, it's not fully supportive, but, but you know, the, the argument's being made there. And you've got to be skeptical in those instances to, to understand, you know, hey, uh, is this sufficient? Do I need to press further? Uh, you know, what, what is it about this piece of information that uh, is causing me to, to question, you know, the, the nature of, of what's being told to me here? Yeah, that, that professional skepticism is such like a base um, skill set. It's such like a foundational skill set. I mean, do you find that that is just still kind of how you, the lens through which you look at everything? Absolutely. Absolutely. Whether it be in personal life or professional life, right? <laughs> you know, yeah. so my, my family looks at me like, you know, you're, you're just way too skeptical. But, but that, that's just the nature of, of, you know, what it is that we do for a living, that, that you have to remain skeptical, that you have to, to evaluate the information that's being provided to you to ensure that, that you know, what you're looking at is, is, is appropriate. 
and, and I think that even applies today in, in a lot of the compliance work that I do as well, uh, you know, in terms of evaluating whether or not, uh, you know, we, we're, we're compliant in, in everything that we do. I mean, it is kind of funny, though, uh, mm-hmm. when my wife says, oh, why are you so skeptical? I mean, if I was like if I was in a lab coat all day working as a scientist, it would be bizarre for someone to say, man, you just you bring this sort of scientific mind to everything. Well, of course right. I do. That's how I look at the world. That's how I do everything, you know? Yeah. Um, right. So I want to kind of talk a little bit about what that. So I want to actually back up a little bit. Sure. I always found it when so my story was. Uh, I was, I grew up in a small business and I was so excited to get out into the real world and see how business was actually done. Mm-hmm. And I thought it was going to be this, like, you know, this moment where the clouds part and the, <laughs> the rays of sunshine come down. And I just get this sort of like massive level of enlightenment, enlightenment. And what I found was like, it was a disaster. You know, uh, there are these big companies and things are not done how you, how they, they weren't done how they were uh, talked about in the case studies that I, you know, that I learned about in undergrad, that's for sure. And I just had this really um, sort of like naive, um, idealized view of how things were supposed to work. And what I found over time, it kind of goes back to what you were saying about the audits. I found over time that, you know, I really almost learned more about the way business was supposed to be done from the small business that I, that I grew up in because I could see the different aspects of it. And I could see how this little sort of department fit with this other department and how this little initiative sort of translated to those other things. As you sort of look back over your career, you know, you just kind of mentioned how some of these smaller audits, you got to see more of those things. How have the, that sort of confluence of um, exposures you had to these different experiences really influenced the mind and the mentality you brought into your role when you stepped into the chief compliance officer role at BDO? Well, yes, I, th- I think it's, it's, it's all those things we were just talking about in terms of, of the, the smaller audits that we did and, and uh, you know, understanding, you know, how management thought, how management operated. I even had an opportunity for a period of time where I did step away from auditing and, and went into uh, an, a startup opportunity. It was a startup financial services opportunity. And, uh, you know, again, it was a situation where, like you said, I, I thought it was going to be kind of the where, where everything opened up and, and the sky parted and, and everything was going to be just perfect. But realized quickly that uh, the, the, the group that, you know, I was working with them was, was not, you know, they, they weren't doing things the way that they should have been doing. And it didn't take me long to, to, to get out of that. But you could see in terms of, of they were trying to get to a goal and, and having challenges getting there and were trying to do whatever it took to get to that point. And it wasn't working. And so, you know, didn't want to have any part of that and, and, and move away from that quickly. Uh, ended up back in the accounting firms, right? And, and again, back into some of these situations where you're seeing the entire uh, circle of, 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 of the company and, and the, the challenges that they bring. So bringing some of that together, you know, you, 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 again, in terms of how management operates, how management thinks, uh, the, the the choices that they need to make on a daily basis and and and, and ensuring that 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 they're getting to that goal in a way that uh, even though it's all there's there's going to be challenges along the way but they get to that goal uh, in in a way that uh, does not compromise their integrity their their you know anything along the way 
And uh, I, I think that's what I've seen and, and want to, to ensure that, you know, as I work in this role, that those that I work, you know, within the, the firm and otherwise, that that's what we're looking for. Have you always been, as you, have you always been that way? That kind of integrity first type of a person? And if so, what do you kind of trace that back to? What are some early sort of pictures of that, that tendency uh, in your life? I think I have. Um, and, and I think for me, it goes back to my faith, you know, uh, to me, you know, it's, you know, there, there's kind of certain absolutes and, you know, I've always tried to stick to those. Yeah. So. Um, yeah. You, you come across as a very, you know, earnest, um, a very sort of genuine person. And, you know, as you were talking about, you know, that, that experience you had at that financial services company, mm -hmm. I'd love to understand what that was like as the sort of scales fell from your eyes, so to speak. Cause I'm sure there was, you know, I'm sure there was a lot of really exciting things to say, cool, this is kind of a startup. This is going to be kind of a fast paced, fun thing. It's going to be a, such a change from the public accounting life that I've been, you know, living. Cause there's, there's a certain rhythm and cadence to that life that I'm sure, you know, this sort of felt like a promised land. Tell me about what that was like when you sort of jumped the fence into the greener pasture to realize it was maybe, you know, not green at all. Well, it was interesting because the gentleman that was that was trying to start that had a pretty good reputation within the community. He had he had, um, you know, done a few other things along the way and, and uh, you know, so had pretty good reputation. Uh, and I thought it was going to, you know, so what based on his reputation, based on what I thought he was going to be able to accomplish, it sounded like a really good opportunity. And I remember talking to the, to the uh, uh, office managing partner of the, of the firm that I was with at the time to, to go over to this entity when I was telling him that I was going to think about doing that. He said, you know, be careful. I remember him, you know, kind of cautioning me about that. Uh, and, th and then getting over there and realizing that, you know, a lot of what I thought the, was was there a lot of the infrastructure a lot of the the funding and so forth that I thought this gentleman already had put pulled together was not there and uh, you know he was trying to run more from the seat of his pants to 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 push forward uh, and really doing it based upon his past reputation rather than you know having everything together and moving forward so it was pretty eye opening. Well, it's so baffling. I don't know if it's baffling. I mean, you see it kind of all over the place. You see it in yeah. sports, you see it in business, you see it all, you know, where people sort of get so fixated on this outcome. And it's like, I'll achieve this outcome by any means necessary. Right. And, you know, you see it in, you know, you see it in, in, I don't know, guys who do steroids to get the championship or to get the belt or, or whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, and they have to, you know, even say publicly that they would never do such a thing and blah, blah, blah. Um, and I just, I always wonder, you know, for folks like that, where they seem to have this sort of lock solid ironclad reputation, like, was that a genuine reputation? Was that a facade? It, you know, was it sort of, it was genuine the whole time. And then there was a shift of priorities where it's like, man, I got to make, you know, I got to make these numbers look good, or I have to hit this sort of life goal for my own ego, or I have to, you know, pay my mortgage. And then there's this moment of compromise. I just, it's such an interesting path to see how someone can build this castle. And then it just sort of falls apart. Like it's a castle of sand, you know? 
Exactly. And I think that's what kind of happened to this gentleman that, you know, he, he, he built this, built it on, on this reputation. And then, then, uh, you know, that reputation left. Crazy. And, you know, what is it? What is your success really built on? Is it built on your, your wit? Is it built on um, the fates? Is it built on uh, just randomness? Is it built on, you know, what, uh, what's really the lever to pull and what do you compromise? And I mean, it's an ongoing battle. You know, I think as you're running a company or as you're in the ethics and compliance department, you know, somebody who was on here recently gave this analogy that said, hey, you know, your, your culture is a garden. And something's going to grow in that garden. And I love that, that analogy. And I, I, I even sort of even thought back to, do you remember those videos of like the dust bowl and there'd be like, you know, a woman on the frontier and she'd have this house and it'd have all the, you know, dust is like always blasting in and they're always, you know, you, you I, I remember reading the story and they were just like, you just were sweeping all the time. You're always having to sweep out the door because there's always this like wind and this dust that's pushing into your house. And that's almost what our sort of lives are like on a micro level, but also what our companies are like on a macro level, because there's so many different competing priorities and incentives and pressures that folks, folks face on a day-to-day -day basis, especially in um in the knowledge work that your whole business is and i'd love to kind of shift gears a little bit and talk about this premise of like you know kind of this shift toward knowledge work that we're all living in right now i find it interesting that a lot of um financial services or consulting or folks like this they have they have by the nature of their business and how clear it is that it's knowledge work have had to face some of these sort of cultural you know, guardrail challenges a lot earlier than a lot of these other organizations where, I mean, look, 80 to 90% of our business today is driven by knowledge work. People, you know, not pulling levers on a, uh, on a machine spitting out widgets. I mean, which you could argue given today's tech, you know, level of technology, even there's an element of knowledge work in those kinds of jobs as well. Right. But talk to me about how sort of that early exposure to this premise, either sort of explicitly or implicitly, has helped sort of guide you toward creating the guardrails around your business that are allowing you to guys you, you guys to really thrive and run forward at the rate that you are. Yeah, so I, I, I think that you know in, in company cultures, you, you really have to. To me, it's 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 about investing in the people and about ensuring that the people uh, have what they need to 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 work. Uh, to, to enjoy their work, to thrive, and, and, and to find meaning in, in the services that they're providing. And so, you know, first, I think it, it's taking care of the people and, and, and ensuring that, that you've got the right people lined up to that, that agree and, and work within the, the, the culture that you have. And then I think it's, it's uh, teaching them the, the guardrails, teaching them uh, for each of their business lines, because it's different, whether it be audit, whether it be tax, whether it be consulting, there's different guardrails that apply. Uh, because, you know, for instance, in, in, in audit, we're, we're looking at, at, you know, the, the rules around uh, from, from the SEC or the PCOB or the AICPA and the professional standards that, that relate there from the IRS, you know, on the tax side, that, that's what they're looking towards. And then consulting, uh, you, you have you have independence uh, from SEC and PCOB and AICPA that, that govern all of that, you know, regardless of, of what business line that you're in. So it's ensuring that the, the people know what, what the, the guardrails are that they're working within and, and being able to to empower them to, to have that understanding and then go out and do their work and do it well, as long as they stay within that. And so 
you know, we try to put the monitoring elements in place to ensure that, that, uh, that, that once we've taught them what the rules are and, and given them the opportunity and all the tool sets necessary to go do the work that, that we can monitor to ensure that, that the work that is done is, is within those guardrails. And it is challenging because as you said, it's, it's, it's you know, a knowledge business. It's, you know, professional services is imparting that knowledge to others, you know, through a service. And, uh, you know, it's all about the people because the, the, the product that, that professional services has is based upon the individual that's out there in the marketplace giving that service. Right. And when you have a firm like ours of 10,000 or you have some of these other large firms of 50 to 100,000 people, you know, that's a lot of people out every day making decisions uh, that, that could impact, you know, uh, you know, their particular firm uh, within the guardrails of, of, of the rule sets that they work with and the regulations. Yeah, there's a whole slew of challenges that right. a business like yours faces that, you know, are very unique to mm -hmm. you. I mean, to that exact point. I mean, there's people all over the place. You guys are traveling and I mean, COVID notwithstanding, you know, 90% or 80% of your folks are probably on the road half a half of, of the time. There's a lot of op opportunities for things to go wrong. There's a mm -hmm. bunch of sort of regulations because you're auditing public companies that you know trading regulations and disclosure things like there's so much stuff that you have to sort through um you know i'm just kind of thinking through what it must be like to keep all the plates spinning that you have to keep spinning what was the state of things when you stepped into bdo and what you know as you were kind of assessing the lay of the land what were popping out is like okay i'm gonna get a ton of bang for my buck for this initiative and you know ultimately i'd love to hear about what you're most proud of um, mm -hmm. over your time there? I, I joined, when I first joined BDO, I joined it to, to work within the, the quality management function of the assurance practice, you know, based upon the experience and so forth that I came from with the Public Company Accounting Oversight Board. And as a result of that, yeah, there, there were some things at the time uh, that, you know, we needed to implement. And, and, and so we, we've done that. And, and it's, it's been interesting to, to be involved in a lot of the, the building of, of some infrastructure that we needed at the time and, and continued over the course of the to, to be a part of. And, and, you know, a lot of that was providing tools, uh, providing, uh, you know, some of the, the things that, the, that were necessary for our auditors to go out and, and do their work. Uh, other things were, were, you know, from the standpoint of, of monitoring, ensuring that once they went out and did their work, that, that you know, we were able to uh, monitor that the, the, that work was in compliance with the regulations that, you know, that governed it. And so, you know, I think today we're at a, at a, at a place where, uh, you know, we can look back and, and see, you know, how far we've come in, in a lot of areas. And uh, so it's, it's been pretty interesting to see that. Yeah, and you probably have gotten involved uh, in the company at a really exciting time because I think, look, 40 years ago, it was just whatever it was, the big six at the time, I, I don't even know. But over, I think over the like the last 10 or 15 years, there's been this almost um, deconstruction of sort of the bigger organizations and you can have really high quality um, advisory services, uh, audits, I mean, any of the thing, you know, great consulting services from, you know, the next tier down, which I believe your company is, right. and that shift in, that shift in talent, that shift in capabilities is ultimately a shift in power that is probably a very dynamic 
uh, environment to be navigating through. It is, you know, I think uh, our firm looks more towards uh, some of the middle market companies that that's who we typically serve, at least from an audit perspective, tax and consulting, you know, serve a lot of the fortune 500 as well, you know, in addition to the middle market. Uh, but we've seen, you know, over the course of time, particularly in the last two or three years, just as you mentioned, kind of a, uh, a shift in some of the, the professionals and, and talent. We've seen a lot of influx from people that, you know, uh, wanted to get involved in, in our organization versus maybe some organiz- you know, some of the larger organizations. Right. As well. And so we, we've seen that over time. Well, and a lot of that entrepreneurial opportunity exists at a company of your size to really Put, put some of your own English on the ball. And I'm sure that was very true as you sort of stood up and sort of grew this compliance program that um, you're the head of. Yeah. Um, what are you most proud of uh, in the time that you've been there and the impact that you've been able to make on the firm and on the culture and things like that? Yeah, a lot of things. Uh, you know, as I came into the compliance role about four years ago, um, really been able to see that grow. And so right now I, I do really kind of wear a couple of hats. I have the compliance and I also still have involvement with the quality management and, and just seeing the, the teams that we've built, both of those teams and, and the, what, what those teams are, have been and continue to accomplish uh, has, has really been very exciting to me and, and, and being able to see those individuals within those two teams uh, enjoy their careers, grow in their careers, and, and have success. And to me, that's, that's a big part of what I, I like to reflect on. When, um, when I was in undergrad and I was trying to pick a direction, um, I really loved accounting and I really loved finance. And mm-hmm. I found accounting to be, I don't, this is going to sound bad, but like I found it to be kind of easy because it was you just had to learn like these base seven principles and they, they just sort of apply consistently across all these different scenarios and all the rules that exist in the, I don't know, the CPA exam was just this sort of expression of these principles in a bunch of different situations. And that was a, that connection like made a lot of sense to me. What I have found as I talk to ethics and compliance folks um, is they, not all of course, but I paint in broad brushstrokes. So, you know, this is how I do it. But there's sort of some people on one side of the spectrum that like get this concept of sort of principle-based materiality. uh, And that's what sort of guides their programs. And then I talk to other folks that are maybe younger in their careers or they're at, they they just come from a different background. And, you know, I guess I can articulate that, that, that other side by like, the policy that's 20 pages long that nobody reads, that's just is trying to articulate all these different, you know, possibilities. Um, I'm sure that you would fall on sort of this, this first side that I was talking about. How have you been able to convey the sort of uh, compliance and ethics, uh, you know, initiatives on a principle-based basis? And what advice would you give to somebody who finds themselves sort of caught up in like all the Marie, all the weeds of all the details and who gets sort of, you know, they can't seem to sort of push the rock up the hill to drive the behavior change that they want. Right. You know, it's interesting. Uh, The, some of the rules are very clear. And and when you read them, you you know, it it says pretty clear what you need to do. There's other rule sets. Uh, We're dealing with, with, you know, some of the OFAC sanctions, and, and that, that comes in through my group as well, right? And, and sometimes those are not as clear-cut. Uh, 
-hmm. And so, you know, when you, you've got different rule sets here and, and some are very clear, some are not. And, and I think it's working within each of those sets and, and the people that you're working through and, and, and knowing what the outcomes should be and how regulators would look at certain things and saying, you know, hey, in this instance, you need to be very detail oriented. You need to, to know exactly what this rule set says and you need to apply it. And here's why. And, and educate them on the outcome, educate them on, on you know, uh, what may be the result if, if they vary from what the rule set says. In these other instances, maybe where it's, it's you know, the rules are not as vague, or excuse me, that, that, that they're more vague, mm -hmm. you know, it, it's teaching them that, hey, it may not say this specifically, but here's what you need to be thinking about here, you know, Think of it in this sense and, and really try to educate the individual in terms of what it is that the that, you know, why it may be written in a vague way, why it may be written that way right. and what they're trying to accomplish. And so it, to me, it's a lot of the education and, and getting them to that ultimate outcome. Yeah, because it's so hard to memorize all of these rules. But if you can mm -hmm. understand the why behind the what on that page, or at least understand the direction behind it, you can start to engage on a deeper level and a more sort of cognitive level that I think can really drive the behaviors that we ultimately want, you know? I think that's right. You know, when, when, when people understand what the, the, the regulator is, you know, we'll say in this sense, uh, are, are trying to achieve what the, what the outcome is that they're looking for. And then you explain that to the different, you know, to, to whoever you're working with on whatever rule set, it seems to me that, that they're like, okay, I get that. And, and I can understand that. And I can get us to that point. Mm -hmm. But if you just put something in front of them, like you said, it's like pushing up a hill and they don't understand it, but right. you know, you've got to, you kind of have to give them that larger vision. So let's jump in our time machine. Let's go back to a young Blake and mm -hmm. give him some advice you wish you had 20, 30 years ago. Yeah, I think it has a lot to do with with people and just being sure that you invest in the people, invest in the people, in your relationships, not only with your family and friends, but with your coworkers uh, and, and all of your coworkers from from the intern all the way up through the highest levels in the organization, anybody that you come into contact with, um, just really invest in those relationships and, and work through that. And, you know, you never know later on in your career who you're going to end up working with later. And so, you, you know, the, I, I think some people see coworkers as, as maybe a stepping stone, which is a bad idea, right? It, it's, it, you know, when, if, you're, if you're in a team, you're the team leader, take care of your team invest in your team, serve your team without expecting anything in return and build that trust, build that, you know, that camaraderie. And even if you leave that team later, you know, those relationships that you build, uh, you know, they'll be beneficial in the future. Um, and, and, you know, like I said, I've worked at a couple of different organizations and, I still have relationships with some of those people that I worked with early in and some of those relationships from years back, uh, you know, are, are still some of the stronger relationships I have today. So why do you think, why, that's phenomenal advice. Why is that such hard advice for folks to really live out uh, and 
I mean, why is that profound? I think it's because a lot of us live in the moment. A lot of us are focused, are very goal-oriented. We're focused on getting to that next level. And, and I mm-hmm. think, that, you know, I think we're, we're so much focused on that, that that we're not thinking about, you know, the longer term and, and how we interact with somebody today, how that might impact us later or may impact that person later. And so I think we got to have a view more, you know, longer than just the short-term goal that we're trying to achieve. You know, um, I was talking to a guy and he said, you know, this universal principle of reaping and sowing is in full effect. And he said, I used to think that that was just kind of karma. Like if you do something bad, then something bad's going to happen to you. Or if you do something good, then that's going to come back around. And he said, that's true at some level, but the real concept is that you're really planting seeds and it takes a long time for that seed to turn into, into the fruit, whether it's good fruit or bad fruit. And to your point, there's long-term ramifications to the way that we live and the decisions that we make and the way that we treat the people around us on our, you know, to your point, you don't know who you're, you're going to work with down the road. You don't know what that's actually going to do to your, um, to your reputation or any of those other kind of things. And, I just thought that was a real eye open. I mean, when he told me that it kind of was like a light bulb moment that there's a longevity, there's a sort of a temporal piece to that sort of reaping and sowing statement that I think a lot of us don't really think about. Right. No, I, I agree. And I, I think it's, it's, uh, you know, just, just and, and I don't think you do it for the purpose of what you might get out of it later. I think in the moment you, you, you invest in those relationships, you serve the other people, without an idea of ever reaping anything from it and as long as you're investing people and 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 if that comes later great but but you know invest in those relationships now um i love how you put that because i think it's sort of natural to want to like give to get that's a natural thing because we're so transactional and we live in a capitalistic society and we're human beings or or uh or or whatever and um I've realized that to your point, you know, we have to just be the type of person that we want to be in the world. That's what it is, irrespective of what ends up coming. It's a much cleaner way to go through. It's a much cleaner way to kind of win the game. And then you're not caught up in the, pardon the pun, but like keeping a balance sheet of all the giving you've got, you you know, you've done and all the getting and has that, has that balanced out. And like, there's no, you can't quantify that in the first place. And in the second place, it gives you just so much more budget, so to speak, to be that type of person, you know, to yeah. lead, lead with that and make those investments in folks. Anyways, I feel like we keep talking, had a lot of fun with you today, uh, Blake. What are our, any parting words? Where can we find you? Uh, what would you want to leave us with today? No, I mean, as where, where you can find me, as you mentioned, I'm Chief Compliance and Ethics Officer there at BDO USA and, and uh, you know, uh, you can reach me on LinkedIn, however you want to, but uh, appreciate the opportunity today and appreciate you inviting me here. Yeah. Thanks for coming. Yeah. Until next time. Okay.